Section four of Take It From Dad by George G. Livermore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section four. Letters of November twentieth and December first. Lynn Mass, November twentieth, nineteen something. Dear Ted, I didn't say anything about it when you were home last Sunday, for you were so happy basking in the glory of that thirty-five-yard drop-kick that won the Andover game, I hadn't the heart to cast any gloom. But honestly, Ted, as a deacon in the first church, I don't enjoy walking to service with a son who looks like a combination of an Italian sunset and a rummage sale of batik draperies. It's perfectly true that clothes don't make the man, but they help to, and because Joseph wore a coat of many colours and was chosen to rule a nation, is no reason for a young fellow to get himself up like an Irish comedian at Keith's and expect to do likewise. Customs have changed a little in the last few thousand years, and although it may still be true that a South Sea Islander may rule the tribe by virtue of being the proud possessor of a plug hat and a red flannel petticoat, it doesn't follow that a passionate pink tie with purple dots and pea-green silk socks with bright yellow clocks will help you to sell a bill of goods to a hard-headed buyer in Kenosha, Wisconsin. I don't want to rub it in too hard, for I realize that in boys there's an age for loud clothes, the same as there is in puppies for distemper, and that if given the right treatment they usually survive and are none the worse for their experience. I won't hire a salesman who wears sporty clothes and carts around a lot of jewellery, for when one of my men is calling on the trade he is not exhibiting the latest styles in haberdashery, but the latest samples of the heart of the hide line, for I've learned that a buyer whose attention is distracted from the goods in question is a buyer lost. All this reminds me of an experience I had when I was in my first and only year at Epping Academy. The academy was really a high school, although I believe my father did pay ten dollars a year for my tuition, and the teachers were called professors. Well, anyhow, at that time my one ambition in life was to own a real tailor-made suit, vivid colour and design preferred. Now, buying my clothes had always been a simple matter, for when I needed a new suit, which in my father's estimation was about once in two years, my mother and I drove over to the Golden Bee Emporium, Boots and Shoes, Fancy Goods and Notions, at Bristol Centre where, after much testing for wool between thumb and finger, and with the aid of lighted matches, and in direct opposition to my earnest request for brighter colours, I was always fitted out in a dark grey, or blue, or brown, ready-made, and three sizes too large so I could grow into it. One afternoon on my way home from school I dropped in at the mansion-house to see if I could persuade Cy Clark, the clerk, to go fishing on the following Saturday. As I entered the door, an array of tailor's samples, on a table by a front window, caught my eye. All thoughts of Cy promptly left my mind, as I let my eyes feast longingly upon their checks and plaids and stripes. The salesman, seeing that his wares had me running in a circle, assured me that the Prince of Wales had a mourning suit exactly like one of his particularly violent black-and-white checks, and that Governor Harrison had just ordered three green and red plaids. 
the salesman informed me that twenty-five dollars was the regular price but as a special favour i could buy at twenty dollars now i had eighteen at home which i had earned that summer picking berries and doing chores and finally protesting so violently i was sure he was going to weep the drummer gave in and i raced home broke open my china orange bank and was back at the hotel having my measurements taken inside of ten minutes for i was mortally afraid someone else would snap up the prize in my absence for the next three weeks i hung around the express office so much that old high monroe threatened to lick me if i didn't keep away and not pester him finally my suit came to tell the truth i was somewhat startled when i opened the box for although the sample was pretty noticeable the effect of the cloth made up in a suit was wonderful from a background of stripes and checks of different colours little knobs of brilliant purple yellow red blue and green broke out like measles on a boy's face and i felt that maybe after all i had been a little hasty in my choice but when i tried the suit on and gazed at myself in the mirror my confidence returned and i felt i had the one suit in town that would make people sit up and take notice i was right i entered the dining-room that evening just as my father was raising his saucer of tea to his lips good heavens he cried spilling the tea in seven different directions why william what have you got on my mother asked my brother ted answered for her a rug do you know ted blamed if that suit didn't look like a rug an oriental one made in connecticut and your uncle called the turn although i never forgave him for it that's why i named you after him at first my father vowed no son of his was going to wear play-actors clothes around the village but when he heard i had paid eighteen dollars for the suit he changed his mind and said he wouldn't buy me another until it was worn out your uncle ted made a lot of cheap remarks about rugs which i put down to jealousy and general sore-headedness because i had made him pay me the day before a dollar he owed me for six months even grandma haskins vowed it looked more like a crazy quilt than a suit of clothes and i was feeling pretty blue until my mother made them lay off next morning i started for school full of pride in my new clothes for i was sure my folks didn't know a knobby suit when they saw it although there were knobs enough on that one for a blind man to see ted had sneaked out ahead of me though and when i reached the schoolyard i was greeted with cries of rug and good morning your royal highness and how's governor harrison this morning ted had told them all on the way home i met old jed bigelow in the square driving a green horse just as the horse got alongside of me he shied and then ran away throwing jed into the ditch and ripping a wheel off his buggy I always thought it was a piece of paper that did the trick, but Jed swore it was the suit and threatened to send the constable after me. How I hated that suit! At the end of two days I would never have worn it again, but my father hid my other clothes and would only let me wear them to church on Sundays. Then I did my best to spoil it by wrestling and playing football in it, but the cloth was about an inch thick it wouldn't tear and mud came off it like cheap blacking comes off a pair of shoes finally at the end of the month my mother came to my rescue and sent it to the poor in boston 
and I want to state right here that it's probably still being worn somewhere in the slums of that city, for it never would wear out. It was the only indestructible suit ever made. Of course I know that as end on the football team you have a certain position to uphold, and I want you always to look well dressed, but I do wish you would try to choose clothes that I can't hear before you turn the corner, and by the way, Ted, everything's going up except your marks. Now the football season's over, perhaps you'll have more time to study. I'd try if I were you. It can't hurt you any. Your affectionate father, William Soule. Lynn Mass, December 1st, 19-something. Dear Ted, I can't say I was totally unprepared for the news when your report came yesterday, for I met Professor Todd at the club a week ago, and much against his will he had to admit that when he asked you in your oral English exam who wrote The Merchant of Venice, you weren't sure whether it was Irvin Cobb or Robert W. Chambers. Naturally, I expected a disaster when the fall marks came, but I was not prepared for a massacre. I had hoped for a sprinkling of C's with maybe a couple of B's thrown in, careless-like, for extra poundage. But that flock of D's and E's got under my hide. It's all very well for you to say that you can't see how it's going to help you make shoes to know how many steps A must take to walk around three sides of a square field two hundred feet to a side if he wears number eight shoes and stops two minutes when halfway round to watch a dog-fight. But let me tell you one thing, son. Any training that will teach you to think quickly and get the right answer before the other fellow stops scratching his head is valuable. And today, in the shoe business, the man who can trim all the corners and figure his product to fractions is the man who buys the limousines, while the fellow who runs on the good old hit-or-miss plan is settling with the leather companies for about fifteen cents on the dollar, and his wife is wondering whether she can make money by giving music lessons. Probation is a good deal like the flu, easy to get, and liable to be pretty serious if you don't treat it with the respect it deserves. It isn't as if you were a fool. No son of your ma's, let alone mine, could be, and your grandfather Sewell could have made a living selling snowballs to the Eskimos. It's pure kid laziness and shiftlessness, mixed in with a little too much football, and not enough curiosity to see what's printed on the pages of your school books. Now you're on probation. There's only one thing to do, and that's what the fellow did who sat down by mistake on the red-hot stove, and the quicker you do it, the more comfortable it's going to be for all concerned, including yourself. So far as I've been able to see, there's no real conspiracy among the teachers at Exeter to prevent your filling your pockets with all the education you can carry away, and if I were you I'd be real liberal in helping myself. Education is a pretty handy thing to have around, and it stays by you all your life. Just because I've succeeded without much is no sign you can and anyway you'll feel a lot more comfortable later on when the conversation turns to history and you know the dauphin was the french prince of wales and not a fish as i always thought until i looked the word up in the encyclopedia now i want you to sail into that math just as you hit the andover quarter when he tried your end and drop old j caesar with a thud before he can get started i know j c was a pretty tough bird 
and how he ever found time to write all those books between scraps i never could quite understand unless he only fought an eight-hour day but it's your job to get him and get him hard one thing ted that's going to save you heaps of trouble if you can only get it firmly fixed in that head of yours is that you can't get anywhere or anything without work just because you're the old man's son isn't going to land you in a private office when you start in with william soul there's only one place in this factory a young fellow can start whether he's a member of the sewell family or the son of a labourer and that's bucking a truck in the shipping room at twelve per whether he gets his hands full of splinters from the cases and a dressing down from mike that'll curl his hair whenever he makes a fool mistake there's no short cut to achievement and work is what'll land you on top of the heap quicker than anything else although I've seen a lot of lightweights who spent enough time working hard to avoid work to succeed with half their energy if spent in the right direction. That reminds me of a fellow named Clarence I hired some years ago to make himself generally useful around the office. He said he was looking for work, and he told the truth all right. He wanted to find out where it was, so he could keep away from it. I let him stay a couple of months, because I rather enjoyed watching his methods. In the morning he would spend the first two hours scheming how to get the other clerks to do his work for him, and in the afternoon he was so blame busy seeing they had done it, he had little time to do anything else. I had seen people who hated work, but I had never seen anyone before who avoided it as though it were the plague. The last straw came one afternoon, when old Cyrus White, of Black and White, the big St. Louis jobbers, walked out of my private office just after giving me an order for three thousand cases, and tripped in a cord that fool work avoider Clarence had rigged up, so that he could raise or lower the window-shade without leaving his desk. Now old Cy weighs about two-twenty, and Clarence, who had looped one end of the string around his wrist, weighed about ninety-eight pounds with a straw hat on. So when Cy went down with a crash that shook the whole factory, he just naturally yanked Clarence right out of his chair, and the two of them became so tangled up in the cord they lay like a couple of trussed fowls while the water-cooler, which had also capsized, gurgled spring water down on Cy's neck. You're right. I lost that three thousand case order, and it was ten years before I could sell old Cy another bill of goods, and to make matters worse, I had to pay Clarence two hundred dollars damages, for in his rage Cy nearly bit off one of his ears. Ever since, when I find anyone on my payroll who is working to avoid work, he gets a swift trip to the sidewalk. Now, I'm not going to stop your allowance because you're on probation. I've more heart for the suffering Exeter shopkeepers than to do that. Neither am I going to forbid your going to the Christmas house party. Those would be kid punishments, and you're no longer a kid, although you've been acting like one for some time. I'm simply putting it up to you, as a man, to get off probation by New Year's, and I want you to remember that as a varsity end you've got to set a good example to the preps. Think it over. Your affectionate father, William Sewell. End of section four.